Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name is Neil Headley. As we get episode 12 rolling, a quick but sincere thank you to you. We found out as we were recording last week's episode that we had become ranked among the category leaders in podcasts in Canada. But it didn't stop there. Now we find out it's Canada and the United States and Germany, where apparently there are tons of sleepless people who are hoping that my search for answers will also help them. See, this is all research for a book that I'm writing about how to conquer sleep problems. And I figured since I was recording these interviews anyway, I might as well put them in a place where people could find them. And you have. So thank you for that. We're kind of laying down the science in this first dozen episodes, and I'm kind of excited about some of the celebrity guests who will be joining us on future episodes to share their sleep tricks with me so that I can test them out myself so that you listen in and you find out what the results were. Among them, uh, let me paint this picture for you without mentioning any names right out of the gate. Um, Imagine that you were sharing the lead vocal duties for a rock band that has sold more than 20 million albums worldwide, but you're on tour and you're in a different city every night. So how do you manage your sleep while that's going on? We'll tell you about that celebrity guest coming in a couple or a few weeks from now. Uh, Frankly, he's on the road right now. And so nailing him down for a few minutes is sometimes a bit of an adventure, but we'll get to that as quickly as we can. We're working on it. It should be any day now from our end, and then it gets added into the lineup of episodes that you're going to hear at a very close future date. For this week, however, I want to introduce you to a world-class neuroscientist. His name is Dr. Guy Leschziner. He is a consultant neurologist at the London. Bridge Hospital, the Cromwell Hospital, and within the Department of Neurology and Sleep Disorders Center at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals. He has a brand new book out called The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. It is out now. It's been out for a couple of weeks now, and it is an absolutely fascinating read uh, involving what happens in your brain while you're asleep and what happens in the brains of people who have, let's say, unusual things going on. Let's get the conversation started with Dr. Guy Leschziner. Well, I'm going to start you with the first question that everybody on the show gets, whether they are a world-renowned neuroscientist or the lead guitarist from a rock band. Uh, How did you sleep last night? Um, I slept pretty poorly last night because I was in a hotel in Wales about to give a talk. And I I never sleep particularly well the night before I give a talk. So just nervous energy then? And what do you do when a night like that comes up for you? Because it's amazing how many different sleep experts I talk to, people who either study sleep for a living, study other people's sleep for a living, the the breadth of answers that I get to that question, what do you do when you can't sleep, is remarkable because no matter what your level of expertise, no two experts so far have ever had the same answer. Well, I know what I should do, but knowing what you should do and what you actually do are two different things. Um, (laughs) Actually, what I did this morning was I I, I read a good book, um, which was quite a nice way to spend a couple of hours before dawn. What I should have done is actually got out of bed, gone somewhere else, but in a hotel room, that's quite difficult to do. That makes sense. Now, is it is it mostly in a scenario like that? Is it the nervous energy of I'm giving a talk tomorrow, and and or is it that you're lousy at sleeping in hotels? Well, I think it's a bit of both, really. It's interesting how hotels just expect us to be able to make that switch 
easily from going to the comforts of home to going to what whoever designed the hotel thought the comforts of home might be to a complete stranger who they've never met before yet designed a bedroom for. Yeah, and I, I guess the parallel in the sleep world is something called the first night effect. You know that whenever you study somebody's sleep for the first night, it's not going to be entirely representative. Your brain is uh, on a little bit of alert because it's a strange environment that you're not used to sleeping in. And, I, and, and so and I guess I exhibit that first night effect whenever I go into a hotel. And it's funny that you bring that up because first night effect is something that I talked about with my sleep doctor here in Toronto, Mark Bulas at uh, Sunnybrook Hospital, who has a website, uh, and we've referred to it on the show before. It's called psgnorms.com, and it allows you to put in your gender and your age, and it will tell you, and this is a meta-analysis of tens of thousands of people who have been to sleep labs, Um it tells you what to expect on the first night, and then you can click another option, and you see what a normal response is on the second night. And it's interesting to look at the differences, especially when you get into things like REM sleep and N3 or deep sleep. Um, you know, because you're one of the things that I guess everyone who does what you do for a living has noticed is that. Yeah, that first night, all bets are off because people are in a completely unusual and foreign environment. They're going to bed with electrodes stuck to their heads. And how do we expect them to get a normal night's sleep? And so it's fun to watch when people are more used to that environment exactly what the differences can be. And I I guess the first night effect, the amplitude of that effect also depends on what your underlying sleep is like. So, you know, we know that actually... People who come into the sleep lab and say, oh, I had a terrible night's sleep, I couldn't sleep a wink, probably those individuals who are poor sleepers or have insomnia anyway, whereas actually those people who have obstructive sleep apnea, probably it makes less of a difference because they're so sleepy anyway. So the nocturnal brain caught my attention for so many reasons. Um, I mean, in my own particular case, my first night in a sleep lab was particularly revealing uh, in that I found I get 1% N3 sleep, which is, you know, one twentieth of what someone my age should be getting, which was an entertaining thing to find out. I also found out that I have a, a periodic limb movement index of 82 so that's quite impressive. <laughs> that's that's the nicest way I've heard that put. Yeah, um, I'm. How old are you? Fifty-two. Fifty-two. That is quite sporting. So it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a good number. Yeah, I if if I'm kicking around that much, I'm expecting the phone to ring from Man U any time now. <laughs> so I've been fascinated about about what sleep is all about for decades now, but it's only recently with the birth of my my daughter, who's 15 months now, uh, that I decided, you know what, it's time to do something about because of all of the scary stories that are out there linking, you know, uh, not enough N3 sleep to Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and all these sorts of things. So it was um, with a great deal of interest that I read through your book and I saw a lot of what happens to people when they sleep. Um, and, and it made me wonder if, gosh, I don't even know if I want to get sleep if this is what can happen to people. Talk to me about the genesis of this book because 
I, I don't want to paint a picture for people that the book is intended as some sort of where we're standing and pointing and giggling at people who've done crazy stuff in their sleep, because it's not even about that, is it? No, it, it, it's so, so the origins of the book are, are rather complicated. When, when I first started, even as a schoolboy, actually, the, the thing that really got me into the world of neuroscience and the world of neurology and was probably responsible for uh, kicking off my career was reading the books of Oliver Sacks. And I think that Oliver Sacks explored a great deal um, of the issues surrounding the functions of the brain and, in, in fact, the, the elements of humanity through his patients by using them as illustrations of how the brain works for all of us. So, actually, I never intended on writing a book. I was involved in putting together a, uh, a radio series on uh, sleep called Mysteries of Sleep for BBC Radio 4, which I guess is the North America is the British equivalent of NPR, for example, in the States. Sure. And it was really out of that radio series that the book uh, originated. Um, so, so, so whilst it is um, a series of chapters surrounding patients of mine with really extreme sleep disorders. It's about using those stories to, first of all, illustrate the huge impact that these conditions have on people, but also to gain some understanding of the sleep disorders themselves and the applicability of those sleep disorders uh, with regard to telling us all, uh, all about our sleep, even when we don't have these sleep disorders. It's interesting um, that that there is so much to be learned about the human brain from what we do when we sleep. And it's funny that you're not the first person to to talk on this show about that. Um, someone else from the neuroscience community who, you know, I, I think a lot of people have this I, idea that, um, people from two countries, if there's two people from the same country, they automatically know each other. But in your case, I think this might be true that you might know Adrian Owen. Yes, I'm not sure I've met him. Adrian was um, introduced into the Order of the British Empire, uh, uh, the most excellent order of the British Empire, pardon me, for his contributions to neuroscience. And one of the things that um, even his Twitter handle will lead you to believe, his, his Twitter handle is Coma Dork. Um, and, and Adrian found that one of the best ways to learn about what happens to the brains of people when they are in comas is to study yeah. them when they're sleeping, because it is so much more easier to find sleeping people than people who are in a coma. Um, and, and yeah. it's it, the, the doors that are opened to understanding the human brain when we're asleep is, you know, it feels like there's a new study coming out every day or even a couple of new studies a day where we still apparently have a whole lot to learn. Yeah, and I think that sleep is really a, a Cinderella area in the world of neuroscience until very recently. So if you look at how much we know about sleep and sleep disorders, um, it, you know, we are probably several decades behind other areas of neuroscience, which is amazing, really, given the fact that we all spend a third of our lives doing it. We know so little about sleep, even now, even in the context of having all these amazing tools to study the brain during sleep and to study sleep in other ways. 
It always astounds so, me. So let's talk about, I mean, as an, as an illustration of where the book goes, and there are many, many cases in the book, but um, from memory, uh, pick one that you particularly like and that you think is indicative of, you know, the flavor of the book um, where we spell out the, 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 the person's situation and then what we learn about the, the brain from what happened to them. Well, I, I think all of them have a slightly special place in my heart, but I, I think that one of the really good examples is uh, one of the cases of sleepwalking that I, I describe, um, whereby one of my patients actually grew up in Canada, but then came to the UK and her sleepwalking really started while she was uh, in the in the guides, I'm not sure if that's what you call them in Canada, but she was a, a young girl in, in the guides and she was uh, being taken out into the woods for camping trips and would wake up all her tent mates growling like a bear in the middle of the night, which I imagine in uh, in, in the Canadian wilderness is not a good sound. Um, but then when she came back to the UK, she then began to start riding her motorbike in her sleep and subsequently later on in life, having given up the motorbike, was seen by her neighbours driving up and down the seafront in her local town in the middle of the night. And I think that this really gives us an, an incredible insight into the fact that whilst we think of sleep not only being a binary state, by which I mean it's either on or off, it, 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 it's even more complicated than that in that different parts of the brain can exist in different stages of wake and sleep at the same time, which is where we think conditions like sleepwalking and sleep talking and, in her case, sleep driving – originate from. It's the fact that certain parts of the brain remain in very deep sleep and are essentially switched off, whilst other parts of the brain are wide awake. They exhibit waking waking activity, which I think is, a, is, is an enormous insight because it also tells us something about what our brains are doing in wakefulness. And there is increasing evidence that Actually, even whilst we're wide awake, there are small, very local areas of the brain, of the cerebral cortex, that appear to be exhibiting sleep-like activity on an ongoing basis. Well, and the converse is also true, right? I've heard people say, um, and, and maybe you can shed some light on this as well, is there are people who will say, oh, well, I must have gotten a great night's sleep last night because I woke up and I could vividly remember a half a dozen different dreams that I had. But then there are people who will say, well, wait a minute, that's that's not necessarily a good thing either. Yeah. And, uh, and another example of that are people who have what we term sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia, whereby they feel that they've been awake for the whole night. But actually, when you record their sleep in a sleep lab, they have a really excellent night's sleep. There are perhaps areas of the brain that are activated that are involved in uh, awareness of your surroundings that may be active whilst the rest of the brain is asleep. There are lots of examples of, of, of this So, in the world of sleep. You know, if you think about lucid dreaming, for example, we think that the basis of lucid dreaming is the fact that there are certain parts of the brain that, that are activated during 
uh, REM sleep that allow us to maintain a degree of awareness and, and hence a degree of control over our dreams or to at least be aware that we're in a dream. I've always envied those people, and I, I'm not even sure if envy is the right word. People like my wife can do this, for example. She will be in the middle of a dream. Something will wake her up. She will attend to whatever it is, whether it's the sound of the baby crying or whatever it was that woke her up. She'll go back to sleep and be able to pick up the dream where she left off. Is that, is that mm. common? I mean, I, I have such limited experience with sleep that I don't know that that's even uh, – I can't even imagine that being possible. But is it not only possible but common? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I see patients. I see patients with sleep disorders and certainly, you know, one cohort of patients in whom that is very common um, is is patients with narcolepsy who often, you know, describe very continuous dreams where they dip in and out of a dream on an ongoing basis. And I think I, I describe one of those patients in the book. Um, I guess lucid dreaming is a little bit different from that. Lucid dreaming is actually remaining within the dream, but having a degree of control over that dream. Again, another one of those things that I, I, I hear people talk about. Anecdotally, I, I hear that people can steer themselves this way or that, uh, or prevent yourself from jumping off the cliff in the middle of the dream and, and instead choose to go, you know, take a turn or something like that. Uh, yeah. I, I spend so little time in REM and deep sleep. I would love to be able to experience what that's like someday. Um, so in in the cases of I'm, – I'm curious how the people that were – in the book, whose stories that you were telling, um, yeah. what was the reaction like when you would come to someone uh, like, for example, the woman whose story actually the, the one that you're describing is it sort of kicks off the book. How, how did the patients react when you said, listen, I, I wonder if I could share your story with the world? I think the first thing to say is that everybody who was mentioned in the book actually had an active role in how their story was described. Everything was accurate uh, and to make sure that uh, they were happy with everything that was being published. And in fact, in the end, the vast majority of the people involved in the book didn't even want their names changed. They were very happy to share their stories. And I think that, that for the majority of individuals who were involved in the book, one of the main drivers for them wanting to be involved was the fact that many of these patients had experienced significant delays in diagnosis and also had had a lot of distress associated with a lack of understanding about their conditions. And they really wanted to try and prevent that happening to anybody else. So, you know, for example, Jamie, who is the young boy that I write about with Klein-Levin syndrome, um, had terrible problems getting a, a, a diagnosis. He was told that he was a victim of abuse. He was told that he might be developing a psychosis. And it was only after a, a, a couple of years that he was eventually given the diagnosis of Klein-Levin syndrome. There's another woman that I describe in, in the book, uh, Janice, who was plagued by choking episodes throughout her teenage and adult life. And this was put down to... Um, uh, an underlying psychological basis and she spent many years being treated with high doses of antipsychotic treatments only to find out in her late 40s that actually it was a form of nocturnal epilepsy. So when you hear these stories, it's very easy to understand why people might want to share their stories. It sounds 
strikingly uh, similar to a, a, a previous guest we had on this show, an author by the name of Roy Parvin, who tells yes, the story. Yeah, so Roy had his 339 nights with no REM sleep and was being treated for bipolar disorder and a variety of other things because um, he didn't have the luxury of – if I if I'll I'll be charitable about this based on the version of the story that Roy gave me, uh, he didn't have the luxury of having a, a, a general practitioner available to him who knew their stuff when it came to sleep, and so didn't think of sending Roy for a sleep test. But it's interesting that you say I know Roy because that's I mean his story is kind of legendary in sleep circles in terms of. Uh, why it's so important to get to a sleep lab in the first place. Is the biggest sleep problem perhaps that we just shrug it off as something that we all should be able to solve on our own because everybody sleeps? Well, I, I think historically that certainly has contributed. I think the other thing that has contributed is the the fact that the medical profession by and large is quite ignorant when it comes to matters relating to sleep and that's in a way our own fault because so little has been uh, so little time has been spent teaching doctors or medical students about sleep now it's got a little bit better it's not got a huge amount better but i think that one of the big changes is the fact that we are now uh, as a sleep community really much better at communicating the negative consequences of poor sleep and all the different potential diagnoses that can cause poor sleep. And the more we do that, the more we educate not only the community of people who are likely to be suffering from these problems, but also the doctors that are involved in in making the diagnoses, or at least identifying it as a problem. Well, and it's, I mean, you, and you've hit on the entire genesis of what this whole snooze button project is about for me is, is that there are so many people who, I mean, if you really want an eye opening experience, go and look at some of the sleep or insomnia threads on Reddit and Facebook and places like that, where there are people who are just desperate for answers, but because maybe their health insurance doesn't cover polysomnography, uh, then they are left to try and, you know, struggle in the wilderness for their own answers. And my thing is always pushing people back to if it's at all possible for you to do, get thee to a sleep lab because while it's terrific to have a Fitbit and, and be able to track your sleep, uh, you know, people will see that they have sleep disturbances and then begin down this willy-nilly path of trying to come up with answers for something when they don't even necessarily know what the problem is yet. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I guess the insurance issue is not something that we necessarily face in the UK because we have the National Health Service. Um, but even so, it's about accessing um, or at least finding a doctor who is willing to take your problem seriously and to investigate them. Well, and you talk about the amount of sort of general knowledge in um, um, in medical practices um, uh, where their sort of baseline level of sleep knowledge is. And I, it's interesting. I liken it to where we are with most, at least here in North America, doctors and nutrition, where um, – once you get beyond a recommendation of eat less, exercise more, 
doctors for the most part, unless they specialize in nutrition, don't really have much helpful data to give to patients. But I wonder this because in the nutrition world, it feels like if there is a study that comes out today that says X, there will be a study that comes out tomorrow that says that the previous study was completely wrong. I think about all the studies about cholesterol and caffeine and all of these different things where we get one result one day and then the next day something completely contradictory comes out. But the sense I get about the sleep world is that all of the research seems to be on a path. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see a lot of studies that come along that say, hey, you know that uh, that conventional wisdom that we all held about a month ago? It turns out we were all completely wrong, and here's what the truth is. There, there's not a lot of that, is there? Uh, certainly there's much less than in areas like nutrition. I think that there are still a, a, a number of unanswered questions, and I think that we uh, ascribe causality to um, – in the area of, of sleep that probably is causal, but I don't think that the level of evidence is quite there yet. And I think one of the issues is that we have not historically had the tools to be able to track sleep accurately in the long term. So I think that's changing a little bit now because in order to demonstrate these causal associations, what we need to do is we need to be able to accurately track the sleep of thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of individuals, not just for a single night as in a PSG or using actigraphy for a couple of weeks, but actually for six months, a year, even five years in order to fully understand the uh, relationship between sleep issues and and health. So do you think that because now, you know, you read the statistics about insomnia and, and how many people are affected by it. Let me throw an idea at you because I, I'm becoming somewhat, what's the word I want to use, notorious for my very, very dodgy metaphors. Uh, but here comes one. Uh, the statistics will tell you that in terms of child safety, Uh, at least here in North America, that there are just as many child abductions today as there were 50 years ago. However, everyone in North America is under a constant fear now that their child is going to be abducted. And and the reason simply is that now if a child is taken 2,500 miles away – We all hear about it because of the internet and it shows up on our Twitter feeds and in Facebook and on our phones and all those kinds of things. So I guess my question is this, are, are, is insomnia becoming a bigger problem or is it that the general population now is more aware of it than we used to be and more aware of the downside? Well, I, I, I think insomnia has always been there, uh, and, um, is perhaps, you know, insomnia is not one diagnosis. I think that's the first thing to say. You know, insomnia is a, is a whole group of different conditions. And, you know, some people will have sleep initiation insomnia. Some people will have difficulty maintaining sleep. Some people will have insomnia secondary to things like circadian rhythm disorders. Now, clearly, there are aspects of our society 
and the way that we organize our society that are not particularly conducive to sleep. But it seems like insomnia is also part of the human condition, at least for some people. So, so uh, it, it's difficult to get a really good handle on whether insomnia is getting more common. I suspect it's just that we are paying much more attention to it than we were previously. We're taking it a bit more seriously. And is that where orthosomnia is is kicking in? Well, I, I, I think the, the difficulty with orthosomnia is, you know, there are multiple facets to orthosomnia. There are people who, are, who don't get great sleep and who are going out and buying trackers that are giving them data that is not necessarily particularly accurate. And so they... Um, interpret their sleep. You know, sleep is a subjective experience as well as being an objective brain state. And so it can be informed by other fact, or your subjective experience of sleep can be informed by other factors. So if your sleep tracker is telling you you slept lousily that night, then you're much more likely to have the view that you have poor quality sleep it, uh, reinforced, whether or not that sleep tracker is telling you the truth or, or not. The, the, the other situation that I have seen increasingly in my clinic is people who have very poor quality sleep, they then go and get a sleep tracker which reinforces the fact that they've got very poor quality sleep and because of all the stuff that is in the media constantly about how dangerous poor sleep is they then become incredibly obsessed and anxious about sleep itself which then drives them into a place of terrible insomnia that's something that i'm seeing increasingly commonly actually i've told the story before on the show uh, of of the number of times that my wife has woken up feeling perfectly refreshed and then she would go and look at the data from her tracker, which said she got a lousy night's sleep. And this literally happened more than once. She turned to me and said, oh, no wonder I feel like crap this morning. And that, well, hold on a second. Ten seconds ago, before you knew what your data was, you said you felt great. Um, so that is a thing. And it does happen. And, and maybe it's becoming more and more common. Um, but I think one of the things that I've, I've tried to stress here, particularly in the last few episodes of, of the podcast, uh, it started in a conversation with uh, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona and continued yeah. with Connor Henehan from Fitbit is that those trackers, and I'd love your input on this too, uh, Fitbits and, and whatever other devices are good for normal sleepers to get a general picture of what's going on. But both Michael and Connor um, both kind of reinforce the idea that if you need, underline need, more granular data, more specific numbers than you're getting back from your Fitbit, then you need to talk to a doctor or you need to get into a sleep lab. Yeah. And I, 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 I would definitely support that view. I think that what Fitbits and other consumer devices are very good at is if you are a normal sleeper, they are good at telling you how much time you spent in bed uh, and are, are pretty reasonable at telling you how much sleep you've got. But if you're an insomniac, you may be lying there completely still, not moving, and the Fitbit, therefore, or, or any other consumer device, I shouldn't use trade names, um, may be telling you that actually you slept much more than you did. But if you've got periodic limb movements or obstructive sleep apnea, you know, all bets are off really as to the accuracy of that data. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that I talked to Connor Heenahan about from Fitbit was um, that what my Fitbit originally thought was uh, me being awake was actually the first couple of hours of my periodic limb movement disorder. Um, and yeah. so I would wake up in the morning thinking, wow, I only got three hours and 10 minutes of sleep last night when actually I was asleep for, you know, five and change, but was yeah. thrashing about so much in, in the night that my Fitbit thought, well, he's obviously awake. Yeah, I mean, you're a, so you're a perfect example of that. The fact that these, you know, if you if you have a problem with your sleep, then probably a consumer device, as they are, you know, as they currently stand, is not what you need. You know, uh, I, I think these consumer devices are great if you know that you're burning the candle at both ends. You're you're not getting enough sleep for you, but actually, when you are in bed, you sleep pretty well. It's quite a good way of monitoring how you, the changes that you make in your in your life with regard to your work, your social life, your family life are impacting on the amount of sleep you're actually getting. But if you're an individual who has either difficulty getting off to sleep, difficulty staying asleep or wakes up feeling unrefreshed, then probably these devices are not what you need. Let's steer back to what's sort of in the wheelhouse of, of uh, the nocturnal brain for a second because there is – and there are a couple, I think, right now of court cases um, here in North America uh, that are related to sleep. One in particular that involves um, in, to a certain degree insomnia as a potential defense for murder. Um, and, and I'm sure you're aware of, of these cases whenever they pop up. Talk to me a little bit about this idea that sleep or insomnia or any of those, you know, sleep disorders might have a role to play in, in those sorts of stories. Well, I think, the, you know, Canada is the home of one of the most infamous or famous court cases, which is that of Kenneth Parks, who was the chap who drove – yeah, 22 kilometers along Lake Ontario, I think it was, to his parents-in-law's house, um, murdered his mother-in-law and, and uh, almost killed his uh, father-in-law and used a non-REM parasomnia as a, a, as a defense. You know, there are lots of cases whereby people undertake particular actions um, that – uh, and then use a sleep disorder as a defense, things like sexomnia, so individuals who undertake sexual behavior in sleep. I think issues surrounding insomnia are a little bit more difficult because I think it's less uh, clear to be able to argue that insomnia led you to do something. But what we do know is that poor sleep and insomnia do alter, fundamentally alter various aspects of neurological function and psychological function. So if insomnia is making you um, depressed or anxious or irritable, then, you know, that potentially could could be a defense. I'm not sure it would be viewed as a very strong defense, but, or it may be seen as a mitigating factor, for example. So before a person gets to, allegedly, the stage of a Kenneth Parks or, you know, even even a bunch of the stories that are in the nocturnal brain. I mean, are there 
warning signs that would come along before we rode our motorcycles in our sleep or or committed crimes or anything like that? Are there warning signs that maybe we could watch out for that might help us get alerted to things like this earlier so that we could come in and see a doctor, go to a sleep lab, whatever it is that we can nip these things in the bud before they become even bigger problems? I, I think that's a very difficult one to answer because for the vast majority of people, for example, if we're talking about non-REM parasomnias, um, the, the absence of previous episodes of sleepwalking or sleep talking uh, or, or, or other behaviors would be a red flag in the mind of any forensic medical specialist. Um, so, so it's a case of... Uh, if you know that you are likely to wonder or, and have put yourself or somebody else at risk in the middle of the night, then I think that's a pretty good indication that you should be, you should be going to see a specialist. I guess the, the, the issue surrounding insomnia is that some of the drugs that are used in insomnia can sometimes exacerbate these things. So I have had patients who, for example, have been taking a Z drug to help them sleep and whom the Z drug has suddenly triggered off a non-REM parasomnia event. So if something changes rapidly, particularly later on in life, that's an additional reason to go and see somebody. And then the other situation which can sometimes result in court cases are individuals who have REM sleep behavior disorders. So this is the condition whereby the paralysis that is normally part and parcel of REM sleep um, of, of incorrectly sometimes termed dreaming sleep. Um, uh, some people lose that ability to generate that paralysis and act out their dreams. And there have been cases of um, significant harm, uh, even death as a result of REM sleep behavior disorder. So if you are, are acting out your dreams, uh, I mean, there are many reasons to go and see a sleep physician, but that is potentially one of them. Now, as as people are listening to this, I don't want them running out into the street thinking to themselves, I need to get myself to the doctor right now before I do something. Because I, I think one of the things that we probably should emphasize, and I maybe should have done a better job of emphasizing this right out of the gate, um, the reason that your book exists, and again, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm frequently wrong, but the reason that your book exists is to highlight that there are extraordinarily unusual stories out there. I mean, these kinds of things that are chronicled in your pages, this sort of stuff happens to an extremely small number of people. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, I think there are cases in the book that are actually extremely common. So, um uh, you know, if I consider the chapter on uh, restless leg syndrome or uh, insomnia or obstructive sleep apnea, these are very common conditions. Now, in the restless leg syndrome chapter, I've obviously taken individuals who have a, a very unusual or a very severe form of that condition. But some of the conditions are, are incredibly common. Some of the more dr dramatic cases are, are, are very much at the extremes of what we see and, and particularly when it comes to violence and crime these are incredibly rare actually very rare indeed 
Yeah, so before you go uh, running to the police station with your blankie in your hand saying, you should probably lock me up in case I do something in my sleep tonight, probably better to take that energy, use it to run down to the bookstore and get yourself uh, a copy of The Nocturnal Brain. Um, I am so grateful that you had uh, some time to to chat about this. The book is fascinating. Um, it's and and I mean this in the best way possible, and I hope it comes across that way. It's unsettling um, in some ways because it it highlights, at least for me, and and I mean I talk to people with a lot of initials after their names a lot lately, um, and and the more I learn, the more I feel like we still have to learn in terms of the function of the human brain, the role sleep plays, and all of that. But it's books like this, I think, that help shine a light for people on just how big of an impact not having your sleep game strong can be, and so I, I'm grateful that you had some time to to shed a little bit light on a, a little bit of light on this for people. Thank you. My pleasure. Good to chat to you, Neil. There you go, Doctor Guy Leshziner. If you want to find out more about Guy or his book, uh, The Nocturnal Brain: Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep, it's there in the show notes, or you can get it on our website as well at thesnoozebutton.com/slash/podcast. All the information is waiting for you right there. If you like what you heard, a couple things you can do. First of all, make sure you're subscribed yourself. Pass on a link to somebody else, and keep in mind that there's also a short version. Of of each episode that's made available where we kind of hit the key points. Call it a highlight reel. It is nine minutes long and it's nine minutes because that's how much your snooze button on your alarm clock gives you. So nine minutes where we jam in as much actionable information as we possibly can into an episode. It's called the Snooze Button Express and it's also available at the same place that you're catching this podcast from. Until next Monday when there's a brand new episode, my name is Neil. Thanks for hitting the snooze button and Hey, uh, get some sleep, would you?